Dana Laskowski, a woman of whom no one could speak ill, was brutally murdered during the early morning hours of August 31st, 2001. The community was in shock. This was a loving mother of nine-year-old triplets who is known for being the sort to offer a helping hand to anyone in need. She also enjoyed a tiny bit of fame as an exceptionally talented artist, though her passion was to help kids. When police investigated her murder, it appeared that all potential suspects had rock-solid alibis until they looked into the life of the one person no one would have ever expected. Welcome, welcome, welcome in, everyone, to Killing, Missing, Hidden, the podcast about bad things. I'm your bad host, Brad. I'm happy to have so many of you here today to listen to this week's tale. I'm sorry there isn't more seating. That's just something we're working on. I hope you've all had a super jolly good week. Uh, if I sound like crap, it's because I feel like crap, so I apologize for that, but, uh, you know, this this is what I do for y'all, because I love you. I've spent, you know, most of the weekend in bed, but here I'm recording, so we can have something on Tuesday for y'all. Uh, all right, boring business, just something I wanted to make y'all aware of. The merch store is disappearing. Yeah, and it costs a pretty penny to keep going, and I don't do a good job managing it, and it's, it's not in high demand, so we're just going to knock out that cost right there if you want any merchandise from now on for at least the time being until i find another solution you can contact me directly and i will get it to you and you can customize it just about as much as you want i've still got my supplier on the hook so that won't be a problem i just don't have a storefront anymore which i guess means for those of y'all that have some kmh merch that it's going to become rarer and maybe a collector's item. Okay, now for the fun part. We have a new subscriber. Seriously. The fierce and unstoppable Abigail has joined our squad. And this, this is huge, guys. It's like getting Wonder Woman or Captain Marvel on our team. She's a game changer. We're honored to have her on our squad. If you ever find yourself in any sort of mortal peril, Abigail will be there for you. She's that amazing. You have our love and respect. And, and the fantastic Robin is now a member of our gang. And this is another one you don't understand how huge this is, okay? Robin's been known to be able to stop a charging warthog with one solid punch, and then attend a black tie event and be the life of the party. I mean... That is a high round draft pick right there. It's such a treat to have someone with such oozing amounts of charisma and strength joining us. Just, we feel very blessed. Thank you both. Uh, I know, and I apologize, the story's going to seem a little bland after this announcement, but how can you compete with Abigail and Robin joining KMH Plus? But here's, here's the best I was able to do to try to entertain y'all or keep your interest after that announcement. 
On August 31st, 2001, police arrived at Dana Laskowski's home in response to a welfare check requested by her employer. Dana had recently moved out to a new city in Washington with her triplet daughters to begin the next chapter of her life after a divorce. And she had been a very good employee for this couple. She served as their nanny. And so when she hadn't shown up for work on time and hadn't called in and then failed to respond to multiple phone calls they had made and several of her friends and family had made, the couple got worried and called the police. Police managed to gain entrance to Dana's house through an unlocked back door before shortly making a terrible discovery. Dana was dead. She was face down on the couch with one arm twisted sharply behind her back. And she just kind of looked like she'd been tied up or somebody had tried to tie her up like a pretzel. It was a very odd death pose. The officers noticed that Dana's body was cold, which of course indicated that she'd been dead for some time. And the house was an absolute wreck. So robbery was instantly on their mind. The autopsy determined that Dana had died from strangulation, but not your regular form of strangulation. So much force was used that several bones in Dana's neck were actually broken during the assault, and her throat was nearly crushed flat. Like, this was a powerful, powerful attack. Her mouth was full of blood, and there were blood splatters on the floor underneath where her head lay. There were abrasions on Dana's elbows, knees, and hands, indicating that she was fighting till the very end. And so naturally, police get this evidence and they say, okay, well, whoever did this obviously was a strong dude, or there had to be multiple killers working in tandem. Her estimated time of death was between midnight and 7 a.m. on August 31st. Now, you know, again, being a recent divorcee, Dana's ex-husband became suspect numero uno, but he had a pretty good alibi. See, he had taken their triplets camping that weekend. And not only did all three girls say that daddy was with us, he had receipts from gas stations he had stopped at to show that he was out of the area. So strike one there. Police soon learned that Dana was dating a new man, a fellow by the name of Michael, who lived in Vancouver. Now, their relationship was kind of winding up. They had been fighting more than they were having fun together. And when police spoke to Michael, he said that he spoke to Dana on August 30th that evening. And, you know, they had a pretense conversation and she refused to say, I love you to him at the end. So he was upset. He said, he told the police, not angry. He was just upset at how the conversation ended. So he drove down to visit Dana, but he was stopped by Border Patrol and turned back because he had some legal issues in Canada he had to resolve first. Border Patrol records corroborated Michael's story, and he was eliminated as a suspect. So strike two. Suspect number three, and arguably the best suspect of them all, was this dude named Patrick. 
And his relationship to Dana was he installed her cable when she moved. That was it. But for whatever reason, Patrick became instantly and strangely obsessed with Dana. Like he would leave flowers and poems on her front porch or on her car windshield. And this went on for about a month before her death. He once wrote this very unsettling letter to her that provided small details of her life, indicating that he had spent at least some of his free time after work just watching her through her windows. Dana was so freaked out that she told her mother and another friend that, you know, if I ever wind up dead suddenly, it was Patrick. Just look at Patrick. Phone records obtained by the police confirmed that Patrick called Dana more than anyone else had ever called Dana at her new home by a ridiculous margin. But despite all of this, police ruled Patrick out as a suspect. Why? Because Patrick was at work most of the night that Dana was killed. And then he went straight from work to a local bar with some friends. And he had a ton of people who could confirm his alibi. Not only patrons at the bar, not only his buddies at the bar, but customers whose houses he visited while he was at work. Patrick also came across as very upset once he learned the news and was just overwhelmingly eager to do anything he could to help the investigation. He volunteered. He was not asked. He volunteered his fingerprints, his DNA, and if they needed anything else from him just to call, he would be there. So Patrick was kind of creepy, but there's no evidence that he was the killer. And that would end up being strike three. And at this point, police became pretty frustrated. I mean, they had three fantastic suspects for a murder. You know, an ex-husband, a soon-to-be ex-boyfriend, and a stalker, but there's no evidence connecting any of them to this crime. In fact, all the evidence pointed away from these three prime suspects. So investigators said, you know what? Let's just start from scratch. We're going to pretend like this is day one. We're going to take a step back and look at this with fresh eyes. And this apparently is exactly what the investigation needed. One of the detectives decided to review the memorial book from Dana's funeral in hopes that the killer attended and decided to leave a little clue. Now, while this didn't happen, they did find something that seemed a bit peculiar. Dana's 17-year-old niece, Amanda, left a statement in the memorial book which read, quote, I'm so sorry I wasn't a better niece for you. 34 days clean and sober. It's all for you. Now, the reason why this stood out so much was the 34 days clean and sober when the funeral took place just a few days after Dana's death. And it was clear that this message had been added into the book well after the funeral service had ended. Uh, police eventually learned that this was a amendment that Amanda had left a month after the service. Now, Amanda was young and had a bit of a rough time in life at this point. 
she really didn't get along well with her parents and she ran away from home a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. Dana had sort of become Amanda's second mom and her home was Amanda's second home. It was common for Dana to leave the back door unlocked in case Amanda needed kind of an emergency place to sleep or a place to take a shower. Amanda's best friend, Emily, often tagged along in these moments of teenage rebellion. Dana got to know Emily and considered her part of the family, too. And it wasn't unusual, you know, for Dana and her three girls and Amanda and Emily to all have dinner together or to watch a movie at home and you just hang out. You know, Dana was trying to provide kind of the safe space for Amanda while she worked out her issues with her parents. Now, in fairness, Amanda and Emily were a bit more than rebellious. They had kind of become heavy drug users and hang, they hung out with a group of kids known as the Park Rats, which is such a great name for a gang, right? I mean, it comes straight from the creative team at Nickelodeon. And in fairness, this wasn't a proper gang because we don't want to disrespect gangs. Uh, it was just a group of friends who focused on getting high and would commit the minor crimes that go along with that lifestyle. But, you know, Amanda had let all the park rats know about the arrangement Dana had with her, you know, the, the back door open policy. When police began looking into the park rats, they found a fellow by the name of Blaine, and he became the newest suspect in this investigation. Blaine, of all the, the park rats, Blaine had a really impressive criminal record for such a young man. And it was well known that he had a heck of a temper. He had even physically assaulted Amanda when she had rejected his sexual advances. At least one member of the park rats claimed Blaine had multiple and noticeable scratches on his arms the day after Dana was killed. And the cherry on top was that Blaine had recently moved out of Washington after Dana's death, but before he was identified as a suspect. So, all right, we got him. So the police waited to get the appropriate court orders and whatnot to have Blaine extradited back to Washington. Meanwhile, they continued to work on building a case against the young man. They decided to speak with two members of the park rats who were in jail while all of this was going on. So detectives, you know, could see what information they could provide about Blaine. Fortunately, these, these two young men were more than willing to talk, but they didn't say what detectives were looking for. These two members of the park rats, and again, I just have to say, I love, I love the name. Um, they said, you know, look, everybody knows Blaine had nothing to do with this. I mean, this was Emily's deal. Well, Emily wasn't really known by Emily in the group. She was referred to as the mutant. I mean, we just, <laughs> the names here, this is like Degrassi level naming right here. If you've ever watched that show, you've got Spike and Snake and the mutant. Anyway, um, so Emily's, you know, decently cute, young, petite, 
blonde girl. How'd she get this colorful nickname? Well, it turns out Emily was freakishly strong. She was on our high school's wrestling team before she got kicked off for drug use. And she was really into weightlifting. Like, honest to God, she was the muscle of the group, even though she stood all of five foot two. And that's like 157 centimeters for you metric users. And guess what her signature move was? Pinning someone's arm behind their back and overtaking them from there. Kind of the exact same position Dana's body was found in. While police were convinced they were looking for a man due to the broken bones in the neck and the show of strength, this was surprisingly compelling information. But of course, the police have to say, well, how do we know these two folk, these two guys in jail aren't just covering from Blaine? I mean, he was kind of the de facto leader of the park rats, and maybe they were protecting their leader. But, you know, you got to follow up on this information, even if, if you're not sold on it, right? Yeah, well, fortunately, police agreed with us. Um, one of the first odd bits of info police discovered was that Emily wore an unusual shirt to Dana's funeral. It was actually Dana's shirt that Emily wore to Dana's funeral. When police searched Emily's room, they decided to peek into her diary, and they found a list of 10 things she wanted to do before she died. And it was typical teenage things. You know, she wanted to visit Amsterdam. She wanted to buy a house. She wanted to kill someone. She wanted to record a CD. Oh, yeah, that, that third one. Yeah, she wanted, uh, she wanted to kill someone and get away with it. That was number nine on her list specifically. In a more recent entry, as police flipped through the juicy details of her life, after having an argument with Amanda, Emily wrote, quote, I could effing strangle that B-word just like her aunt. Oh, and police did find Dana's shirt that Emily had uh, borrowed for the funeral in Emily's closet. When questioned, Emily just flat out refused to talk to police. When Amanda was brought in, knowing that she was Emily's best friend, Amanda was willing to talk and made a tiny bit of a confession. She, uh, she said she was there when the murder took place. See, what had happened was both Amanda and Emily were like way extremely high when they came over to Dana's house. And the whole reason they stopped by Dana's house is they wanted to see if Dana would give them some money so they could go get more drugs to get more high. Of course, Dana refused. And Amanda turned to leave, and Emily turned to leave, and Dana apparently put her hand on Emily's shoulder, and that just set Emily off. She turned around and got Dana in a headlock before getting her hand around her back and dragging her down to the couch. Amanda claimed that she turned around because she was scared to watch, but it seems like Emily kind of sat on the back of Dana and choked her as hard as she could before Amanda eventually heard a snapping noise following by some gurgling noises. So on March 3rd of 2003, 
Emily was arrested and charged as an adult with first-degree murder. Police wanted to arrest Amanda as well, and prosecutors considered it, but instead they made a deal with Amanda. They would give her complete immunity in exchange for her testimony against Emily, and Amanda quickly accepted this deal. As the child grew closer, however, prosecutors began growing concerned about the case they had against Emily. They believed Amanda might not follow through with the deal. And if that happened, they would be left with really nothing more than circumstantial evidence. And they may not can obtain a conviction that way. Ultimately, prosecutors offered Emily a plea deal, which she quickly accepted herself. Six and a half years in jail on a plea to manslaughter. It's been over six years since this occurred, so Emily's a free woman. She was released from prison in 2009. She currently resides in the same town in Washington where she did before her stay in jail, though under a different name. Huh. So do any of y'all feel like that story just ended like it got a flat tire? I don't, I don't really understand how you can arrest someone for first-degree murder then be cool with them serving six years in jail. Um, there was a lot of fear and insecurity motivating this decision by the prosecutors, I think. I mean, yes, it's absolutely heartbreaking to lose a trial, especially when you're convinced that the defendant committed the crime. But that plea deal is like ridiculously good from a defense perspective. You know, whatever, whatever motivated this, I mean, I know what it was. They were scared of losing. It was just the degree of fear that's behind this, apparently, though, it's just unjustified, in my opinion. Now, I mean... I, I'll give the disclaimer, of course. I've I spent my career practicing in Alabama, which is one of the most aggressive states when it comes to throwing folks in jail. And Washington is kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, where they're a little bit more, they have a reputation for being much more focused on things like rehabilitation and improving people's lives rather than just locking them in a cage. So maybe I don't fully appreciate how juries react in criminal trials in Washington, but my goodness, they, they had enough evidence here, in my opinion, to support at least a second-degree murder conviction. When while the prosecutors you know, claim, well, we don't have anything but circumstantial evidence without Amanda's testimony, I don't agree with that at all. Um, I mean, first, you have Amanda's testimony. You know, people don't walk away from immunity agreements in real life. The way you get immunity agreement is first you're charged with a crime. And I don't know what Amanda was charged with. I, and maybe they do things differently in Washington and, and don't follow this exact procedure. But typically you charge the person with the crime. And the deal is they go ahead and they plead guilty but the trial court suspends sentencing until after they give their testimony. And once they give their testimony, the state then moves to dismiss the charges against the testifying witness. 
And it doesn't follow that exact procedure in every case. Sometimes they'd, you know, just charge you and hold the threat of prosecuting you over your head. But regardless, like, if you agree to immunity, you are tied down to this case. Like, if you show up at trial and you're, oh, I don't remember. I don't know. No, I never said anything like that. Well, your butt is getting busted hard when it comes time for your prosecution. I mean, you've taken a deal and thrown it back in the prosecutor's face. That, yeah, I mean, that's, that's bad. And so in my mind, Amanda's testimony is locked in unless she has a really, really dumb lawyer advising her. The second, I mean, arguably to me, they have a confession from Emily. She wrote in her diary she wanted to strangle Amanda just like she strangled Dana. Maybe it's not an ideal confession to prosecutors, but how does Emily explain this away on the stand? Even if she doesn't take the stand, you should still be able to get this into evidence as a prosecutor. You know, and on top of that, one of her stated life goals is to commit a murder. I mean, look, I know the initial objection that people are going to say is, how do you get this in? This is hearsay. And it would be hearsay traditionally. But... All you do is put the detective up there that found it and said, did you go through her diary? Did you find anything interesting? And when they object saying that this is all hearsay, my response would be, you know, judge, we're not offering this as a statement from Emily. We're not offering this for the truth of the matter asserted, as we say in legalese. We're offering it as a statement against interest, or we're offering this to, you know, kind of show that there would be existence of a motive here. She wanted to kill somebody. Um, and so I think most judges would allow this in pretty easily, you know, especially when the rest of the testimony and evidence is going to show that Emily was well known for her arm breaker wrestling move. And then on top of that, she wore Dana's shirt to Dana's funeral, almost like a trophy or a middle finger to Dana. And this makes me think or worry that somewhere along the way, police might've screwed up and the prosecution was worried that the case was gonna get torpedoed by whatever error detectives committed. Now, I don't have any reports on this or any evidence to suggest this is true. This is just me speculating. But if that were to happen, then certainly everybody would go out of their way to make sure this wasn't reported. And it's one of the few explanations for going from first-degree murder to manslaughter that I could accept. Assuming there's no screw-up by the detectives, the, the best offer I think I would be able to make in a situation like this as a prosecutor is second-degree murder and probably 20 years. I mean, you just, you don't allow someone to get away with killing another person, especially in such an intimate and brutal manner, especially when the person who was killed 
was essentially serving as 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 a as a lifeboat in the sea of chaos that is is your life you know um oh it's just i don't like how this one ended at all uh you know i i don't have much else to offer other than saying that uh this i i, I don't like how this case was handled you know dana seemed like a fantastic person who went out of her way to help not only her niece but her niece's friends and unfortunately, that kindness also created an opportunity for her to be victimized. And it's so horrible because it discourages people from being kind and open to others. And, you know, it's just not to sound like Alanis Morissette here, because this isn't the right term, but it's, I'll say ironic that Dana left her back door open to help people. And that's the means by which she was killed. And that's the means by which police were able to find her dead body. So we move from that bit of sadness to our next bit of sadness, our palate cleanser. We are always trying to see if we can't find the bedrock for the worst jokes out there and then break through even that. You know, Mr. Eli is typically in charge of these things, but he's been kind of too cool for me recently. Um, so that's why you've noticed the quality dropping off. So feel free to submit a joke to, to help me out and make this a little bit better. And assuming I don't misplace it, I'll use it in a future episode. So since football season is fast approaching, I mean, by the time this is released, actually, we would have already had the first college football games happen and the nfl would be about nine days away i think uh we're gonna do a football joke that, that's the theme so here we go what do you call a genius sitting in the student section at the university of tennessee football game what do you call a genius who's sitting in the student section of a university of tennessee football game you call them a visiting fan. Ah, like that one. One's good. It's quality. This Tennessee sucks. Ah, so excited to have football back in my life. Um, all right, my friends, that, that's today's show. I'll ask, as I typically do, that you share us with those you know. I'm going to... I saw another podcast do this, and so I'm just going to blatantly steal the idea. And if I remembered who it was, I would give them credit. It may have been teachers talking crime, but here, here's, here's the specific requests I'm making this week. Please share our podcast in social, social media if you have such. Now, a link would be awesome. But what I'm going to ask for is a picture of your phone, or if you've got a display in your car, a picture of your vehicle playing our podcast with a brief shout out. Huh? I mean, how compelling is that? It's not just robots listening to the show. There's real people out there, I think. And, you know, as a podcast, we're like panda bears. If we ever stop moving forward, we die. So help us keep moving and growing. That's that's right about panda bears, isn't it? Don't th it or is it great white sharks? 
I get I get those animals confused all too often. All right, I, I'm a dad who must, by law, complain about the cost of electricity. So I'm shutting this one down, but please continue to visit us. Love it when you, you know, come by, settle in for a spell, especially when you bring, you know, like cookies. And, and, and we love having both Abigail and Robin as KMH plusers. Thank you again, you destiny shapers. Ah. We should be back again in about a week with another story about another bad thing. So until we meet again, Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.